Laudator Jesus Christus, praise be Jesus Christ. This is Matt Gaspers, Managing Editor of Catholic Family News, and I'm joined as always by my friend and colleague, Dr. Brian McCall, who is the Editor-in-Chief of CFN. Hello, Brian. How are you today? I'm well today, and hope you are too, Matt. Very good. Thank you. And we're celebrating a little anniversary here at CFN today. We've, I believe we've reached the one-year mark for making these weekly news roundups. I think this is our about our 51st video or so we we've missed maybe a cup one or two weeks in the last year not very many uh so we're happy to to celebrate that milestone we our youtube channel currently has about 3500 subscribers and we would love to see that number number at least double in the next year of making these videos and in order to make that happen dear viewers of course we need your help uh, make sure that you are subscribed yourself and also please like these videos, share them with your family and friends on social media and, and uh, talk us up to your family and friends so that we can continue to increase our number of subscribers, which increases our reach. And ultimately, if you uh, appreciate this content that we make available for free, we do ask for your support in the form of a subscription to our monthly publication, Catholic Family News, or perhaps a donation to our apostolate. So today we are coming to you on uh, Friday, September 25th, 2020, and there's no particular saint assigned today in the traditional Roman calendar, but it is still a special day. It's an Ember Day, Ember Friday, and maybe Brian can give a brief explanation about the origin and the purpose of the Ember Days on the church calendar. Yes, the Ember Days go back to the ancient church, the ancient Roman church, so just in the apostolic era, and are uh, the, the uh, days associated with the four seasons of the year. So there are four sets of Ember Days, always on a Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday, uh, corresponding uh, around the, the equinox and the solstices, so in September, um, December, March, and June. And they're a way for the church to implore with, with fasting, uh, because they are days, traditionally they were days of fast, mm -hmm. uh, like Lent, and they, uh, to implore with special prayers the protection of God on the various seasons of the year. So these ember days falling in September are kind of the end of the harvest season, the preparation for winter, sort of pray in a particular way, and to make sacrifices for those. They are very, again, extremely ancient days. Their liturgy goes back uh, to the earliest centuries of the church. And they do have some, uh, the priest will be, if you go to mass, vested in purple, because they are days of penance. And uh, they are slightly different uh, liturgical, uh, um, I guess, variations, which are very reminiscent of the ancient church. Saturday has the fullest, uh, usually on the Ember Days, there are multiple epistles. So if you go, you may get confused. You see the, the Kyrie, and then you hear an epistle, another epistle, another. Uh, that's because the church, again, in, in endows these days with additional readings from scripture. Uh, and you will also see the ancient form, in, we just have the Dominus Bobiscum, but in the ancient form, when there were deacons present, there was the uh, Oremus, Flectamus, Genoa, Levate, then Oremus, that we still hear on Good Friday, from let us mm -hmm. kneel, let us stand, uh, because the Good Friday liturgy is also very early. So that presence of those call, let us kneel, let us stand, as a sign of like on Good Friday, extra penance, uh, uh, but is also a mark of how ancient these are, because that practice of 
having those invocations sort of fell away from the rest of the liturgy after in the later centuries. So very, mm. very ancient and very important, really good days to have special intentions because the church is sort of intensify, intensifying her mortification and prayer on mm. these days. To remind us, Lent is our big retreat for the year, but really we're supposed to have a spirit of penance. Again, not every minute of every day, but throughout the year. So there are these three days every, mm -hmm. every quarter uh, to do that. Yes, and there's also, uh, speaking of intentions, isn't there also a particular emphasis on um, interceding or imploring God for holy clergy, for holy priests? There is, because a later edition, uh, as later centuries went on, there became a custom of some of the ember days were days upon which uh, some of the minor orders uh, were conferred. So you may see in some old missals, for example, the Ember Days in, in March, it'll say like after one of the epistles, now the porters are ordained, now the lectors. And again, in more recent centuries, last thousand years or so, that that ordinations were able to be done on other days and they now currently are you know not always on Ember Days. But there was originally a connection between the preparations right. towards the priesthood and uh, and that so it again good custom is it use the mortifications and prayers to pray for vocations yes yes very good well thank you for that brian huh. um since our show last friday the church has also celebrated some other wonderful feasts uh, we're just going to go through a few of them very briefly first of all uh september 19th so that was uh, last week saturday saint januarius who was a bishop and martyr in the early fourth century he died around the year 305 under the roman emperor diocletian the terrible persecutions under that emperor and the unique thing about this saint is that his a relic of his blood has been preserved I th he was a bishop in naples i believe is where his relic is preserved and his blood miraculously liquefies annually on his feast days, or 19th. We have some video footage that I found of this uh, event actually taking place in the cathedral in Naples uh, this past Saturday. Cari amici, cari fedeli tutti, ancora una volta con gioia, commozione, vi informo che il sangue del nostro santo martire patrono Gennaro è sciolto. So then you, you can see the relic there of the, of the, of the, uh, of the great saint. Yes. That's an amazing. It's an, it's an annual miracle. It's pretty yes. amazing what God gives to us to, to confirm us in the true faith. Yes. Uh, also this week on Monday, September 21st, was the feast of my patron saint, St. Matthew, the Holy Apostle and Evangelist. And also yesterday, an important feast that I don't believe is still observed on the, uh, on the re so, you know, revised calendar after Vatican II, but it's a great feast, Our Lady of Ransom, September 24th. Uh, CFN contributor Matthew Plessy, who's the author of our monthly Roman Catechism series, a great catechetical series in the paper, he explains in a 2012 post on his personal blog, his website, which is called A Catholic Life, quote, 
The Order of Our Lady of Ransom was founded in the 13th century by St. Peter Nolasco and St. Raymond of Penafort, aided by King James of Aragon. The object of the order was to redeem Christians held in slavery by the Mohammedans or Muslims. Pope Gregory IX, who reigned from 1227 to 1241, instituted the feast of Our Lady of Ransom at he is the one who instituted the feast, and afterward it was extended by Pope Innocent the Twelfth in sixteen ninety six to the universal church so this uh this feast yesterday's feast is going to tie directly into our first story today before we get to that. However, we also wanted to briefly mention that yesterday was also uh the 50th anniversary of the opening of the original Society of St. Pius X Seminary in Econ, Switzerland. Bishop Bernard Fillet, this, the former Superior General of the SSPX, he served in that capacity from 1994 to 2018, offered the Mass and sermon for the, for the celebration yesterday, and it was followed by the transfer of the mortal remains of Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre, the founder of the society who died in 1991, from the seminary vault to the crypt of the Church of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Now I was curious if Brian knows, I've never been to that seminary, I didn't know if Brian had ever visited, is that the church on the seminary, or on the, yeah, on the seminary grounds, or was it a different location? Or? Yeah, I, I, unfortunately, is one of the places I've never I've never been to. Uh, I'd love to be able to to get there, but I have not visited a cone. Um, but what I we do have some friends that that did, and they took uh, some holy cards for us and touched them to the grave of the archbishop when they were when they were there and framed Very it good. for us. It was a nice gift. But uh, no, I've never been there. But my understanding is uh, there. It is. It, I don't know if it's technically on the grounds, but it's sort of the larger church that they built to accommodate the faithful. That is either on the grounds or or just near uh, the, uh, the the grounds of a cone. Yes. Okay. So we have some uh, video footage just to, for folks to get an idea of what took place there yesterday. Uh, the transfer of the mortal remains, the coffin, basically of Archbishop Lefebvre, and it was placed into a, a tomb in the crypt. Yes. So yeah, he was, again, there's his funeral in 91, surrounded by again, hundreds of his priests and the bishops that he consecrated, laid him to rest. And as often the case with, with great men of the church, on an anniversary or later, their remains are often exhumed and moved to a, a grander or more fitting fitting place. Um, and again, that's what they decided to do to honor this, this anniversary. So first let's play, yeah, this a little clip from, uh, the, you can see the full mass that was done to celebrate the 50 years at a cone. And then at the end of it is when this occurred. My name is Alana. I was six oh, sorry years about old that. And, <laughs> and I diagnosed with cancer. Commercialization. There we go. Yes.
in the video quality, I'm not sure if it was windy, but I've noticed the video quality is not uh, mm -hmm. the greatest. But the the um, celebrant for the mass and for the transfer was uh, uh, Bishop Fillet, Bishop Bernard Fillet. Uh, and again, you can see the archbishop was surrounded, presumably mostly by European seminarians and priests because of the travel restrictions. Um, but you can see his, uh, his coffin there was... Um, being reinterred, being taken and reinterred. Yes. And, and again, it's uh, the video quality. I had a hard time. It is a bit jumpy, as you noticed, and, and I'm not sure what that was when they're particularly when they're outside in the church. It's better, but it is an important day for us to to remember. Fifty years ago, and it's easy. We're so familiar with the history, but to remember, uh, Archbishop Lefebvre was retired. He had lived. A lot of people, most people who've heard his name in our world only know the Episcopal consecrations, the Society of St. Pius X. But, but the time he started that work, he was a retired bishop. He had lived a huge life. He was born in 1905, had spent decades in Africa, had been a missionary, had been apostolic delegate to French-speaking Africa, had been the superior general of the Holy Ghost Fathers, was active at Vatican II, was very obviously distraught at the end of Vatican II with the changes, but said, okay, I'm old, I'm past retirement, I'm just going to live out my life. And it was when some young seminarians, among them the now Bishop Bernard Tissier de Marais, came to him in Rome and said, Archbishop, you must help us. We can't get a, a seminary training. And interestingly, the founding, most people think the society was founded to resist the new mass or to, for the, just to preserve the old mass. Obviously, that's part of it. But it really wasn't. The first cause was to train priests in a traditional way. And the request that came before the new mass was promulgated was from these seminarians saying, we're losing the faith. We can't go to these seminaries. Will you teach us? So again, the archbishop had been uh, rectors of seminaries. Uh, he cared deeply about the formation of his priests when he was a bishop in Africa. Very concerned and very much an advocate for ordaining and properly training indigenous priests, priests in the sense that come from Africa, right? And um, that that's the way to build up the church in Africa. He was a master trainer of priests and they came to him. And again, his first reaction was, I'm, go find somebody else. I'm, you know, my time's over. But he moved by divine grace he accepted this, and then very quickly, things God's providence came together. The property for a cone was dedicated, it was donated. Uh, the church quickly gave her blessing in the founding of the seminary. And again, the whole purpose in the society statutes originally was to be an international seminary to train priests from all over the world. And the idea was, you know, dioceses would send their priests, so we want a good seminary. They just, they wouldn't join the society. They just get sent back to be good priests. But things developed very quickly, and pretty quickly the priests realized the seminarians were not going to be allowed back if we get proper training. And that's when he started incardinating, saying, okay, well, you can now join this order I'm forming. And, the, and it's always important, the first order or the first principle of the society, its first reason for being. A lot of lay people think, oh, it's to bring us the mass. No, mm -hmm. their first charge is to, for the formation and care of priests. That's the reason they were found. We're for priests and to train priests. Then secondarily, once the crisis in the church developed, okay, now we formed them. Let's bring the old mass to people. Uh, but that's always secondary. The primary purpose is the restoration of the priesthood. And that is really what we're remembering now 50 years on. And from the writings of the archbishop and his speeches, in 1970, 50 years ago, he had, I think, no expectation 
the society would be where it is today. I mean, his thought, like I said in the beginning, is we're just forming a seminary to help out the church, and we're just going to be part of the mainstream church providing seminary education. Never, I think, expected that this crisis would go on this long. I, again, by the end of his life, he realized it, and you hear in his later writings, he realized this is a long haul. Um, but, but for his actions in 1970, the Catholic priesthood would have all but vanished. Remember, there were a few priests out there who were pre-conciliar, who were trained and hanging on to the old mass. Uh, Father, you know, great, great priests, very uh, Father O'Connor, good one, Father Watkins. But there were no places training new priests. So when all those old priests died, there would be no one. So, but for the founding of a cone, we would not, we you know the Catholic priesthood would have been uh, completely eclipsed. So we really do, it's a good time to pause as, as Archbishop Vigano did when he, in his response to Catholic Family News, acknowledged the debt that we owe to Archbishop Lefebvre. But for his standing up and founding the seminary in a cone, we would Indeed. have no priesthood. And again, just lastly, it's interesting when you read the tussles between the Vatican and the Archbishop and the society, almost, even the press talks about it. They don't say between Archbishop Lefebvre and the Vatican or the society in the Vatican. It's always Rome and Icone. Icone was their focus because they knew the seminary was the linchpin that really advanced the entire mission. Forming priests was mm. essential. Yes. Very good. Well, thank you for that, Brian. Um, so transitioning into our first news story today, I guess that was kind of a news story unto itself, and rightfully so. Um, our next story is going to tie into the Feast of Our Lady of Ransom, which, as you recall, honors the founding of the Order of Our Lady of Ransom by Saints Peter Nolasco and Raymond of Pinafort. And who, as I understand it, Our Lady actually appeared to those saints and said that she wanted the founding of this order specifically to rescue uh, Christians, to redeem Christians, literally to buy them back out of slavery mm. in Muslim lands who had been yes. captured. You know, th this was, of course, the era of the Crusades and uh, that, uh, unfortunately, slavery uh, was a very, was and in some ways still, still is, is very much an accepted practice in Islam. So these Christians who were captured were, were made into slaves. So this order was founded, very similar to the Trinitarians who had the same mission, if I recall correctly, to redeem Christians from slavery in Muslim lands. Mm. So something that's very important to remember is that the persecution of Christians, even the enslavement, the, um, the violent persecution is not something just from centuries past. It's an ongoing reality, and that's what our first story is really about. Um, <clears throat> earlier this week, there was a, a, an online summit. It's usually held in person, but because of the COVID and everything, uh, it had to be held digitally or virtually, uh, held by a group called In Defense of Christians, which is a, a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit organization, which, quote, advocates for a Middle East in which the rights of every person are protected and respected, regardless of religious creed, in which the ancient and in which the ancient and diverse Christian and other religious minority communities of the Middle East thrive peacefully in their native lands. That's from basically from their mission statement. Uh, so it's certainly got an interreligious flavor to it, but at least they are standing up for the persecuted Christians who are still very much persecuted in the lands of the Middle East, which were overrun by the Muslim hordes 
beginning in the seventh century and moving forward from there. So I came across a report from a Catholic news agency. They reported on this, um, this online summit, which took place earlier this week. The headline for the article reads, conference highlights forgotten persecuted Christians, because unfortunately in, in modern times, a lot of times the persecution that, that Christians face, especially at the hands of Muslims in modern times, is either ignored or kind of whitewashed over for the sake of being politically correct and not offending Muslims or Islam. So this conference, it sounded like, based on the CNA report, it focused a lot on uh, the situations in Nigeria, which is not somewhere where you'd automatically think of um, Christians being persecuted by Muslims, but it actually is very common. There's a, there's a jihadist group there that's been active for several years now called Boko Haram. And it's actually, as the article explains, it's a terror group which became, uh, took the name the Islamic State of West African Province. Uh, so it associated itself with ISIS or the Islamic State and they are very active in Nigeria. You know, there's talk of there being a renewed Christian genocide even in Nigeria because of all the, all the violence against Christians there. And then also in the nation of Turkey, as I think we've reported recently, you know, with the uh, Hagia Sophia Cathedral Church being reverted back into a mosque and the current leader of Turkey, um, I think his last name is Ret Recep. Erdogan. Yeah, er that's right, Erdogan. Recep Erdogan is very much in favor of basically resurrecting the Ottoman Empire and, and very strong in his um, Muslim Islamic convictions. So it's a, there, it's a definite, a clear and present danger to Christians throughout the world, especially in Muslim lands. And I just as a side note, I wanted to mention this group uh, in defense of Christians is actually the same organization that teamed up with the Knights of Columbus back in uh, 2016, and they prepared a 250-plus page report entitled Genocide Against Christians in the Middle East, which was presented to then U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry. So this was in early 2016, um, trying to raise awareness about this issue of genocide against Christians. So interestingly, uh, last week, Friday, September 18th, a new film starring Jim Caviezel, who of course is famous for portraying our Lord in Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. Uh, this new film is called Infidel, and it's a portrayal of the terrifying reality of persecuted uh, Christians. It premiered in theaters across the U.S. last Friday. It's based and on a true story. Correct, it yes. is. Yeah. It is, yes. So the plot of the film is summarized as follows on the, the film's official website. It says, quote, a contemporary Middle East thriller starring Jim Caviezel as an American kidnapped while attending a conference in Cairo who ends up in prison in Iran on spying charges. His wife goes to Iran determined to get him out, end quote. And as Brian mentioned, the film is based on the true story of American journalist and Christian blogger kind of slash apologist, Doug Rawlings. So during an interview on Fox News last week, uh, Jim Caviezel, the star of the film, had some very strong words, both about the, the theme of the film, but also interestingly about what he referred to as cancel culture 
and specifically the weakness of clergymen in the context of the coronavirus lockdowns. We're going to play this clip because he's got some very strong words. Um, you are someone that is very vocal about your faith, and you're talking about that in the context of what's going on uh, now in 2020. I mean, this movie gives you a good opportunity to get back out there and to share. Um, what is your concern today about the role of faith and, and what people of faith should be doing? Well, okay, so first of all, my, my, my job is to get people in the theater. Why should I go? One, it's a, it's a great film. Second uh, of all, of how is this relevant today? Well, it's relevant because um, we have this thing called cancel culture, and if Christians don't watch it, it will be canceling Christianity as well because a lot of our pastors okay our bishops our priests they're laying right over they, they let their churches being burned all right how do we know that well it's right there in the news statues being ripped down they don't say anything and i watched a movie that mel gibson did braveheart when you have the english who's the bad guys against the scots but the real bad guys were the guys that were collaborating all right that's why we're in this situation right now we can't go to churches we can't go into our church well, why? Because they could get contaminated, right? So then why are we on airplanes? I have friends that have committed suicide. I have seven, I have seven uh, SEAL buddies that have lost seven of their friends of committing suicide. And would it have helped to be able to get into a church, especially during this time? Absolutely. And is it good for mental illness? Yes, it is. And so um, uh, the collaborators in our faith, all right, this is where the persecution starts. You've got to have guys inside your faith that won't stand up to the governors, that will not stand up to the mayors. And that's why the Gospels are very much alive right now. Okay, so there are many of us, I got to play Jesus. Some of us love Peter or Paul, but there are many of us right now that are, are, are flat out Judases, okay, or they're Pontius Pilots, or they're, they're the Pharisees. Okay, and it's a bloody shame if you can't tell the difference between a, a priest, a, a bishop, or a politician. It's really sad, but this is called lukewarmness, mm -hmm. and Christ has a very special place for them, and they know it. Well, we're out of time, and there's so much. <laughs> well, wow, pretty much left her speechless. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> totally speechless. That was incredible. Uh, I mean, what a. Uh, what a statement. I mean, here's, and I've read a lot about his life as an actor. He, playing our Lord definitely touched this man. I mean, we, we, oh, yeah. we've been told that that affected his life dramatically. Well, as I understand it, he actually ended up having to have open heart surgery after playing the part. Because yes. He, I don't know if it was directly related to that, but yeah, he, he went through some amazing things with that well, film. Well, but not just, I just mean even spiritually. He, oh yeah, absolutely. He definitely affected him, which, uh, and, and you can clearly hear that uh, in his comments. I mean, this was not a, you know, a, a traditionalist priest or somebody. This was, uh, you know, a, a layperson, an actor, basically calling our bishops uh, Judases. Which, right. uh, again, what we've said all along, if you can't go to church, don't blame your governor, as he's saying, blame, blame your, your bishop. And in fact, you can't even tell the difference between a bishop and a politician as point we made a long time. But his important connection between this and the movie, again, that's really powerful because what he's saying is the movie's to raise awareness about persecution and the persecutors are obviously bad, but what he's saying is more dangerous are the collaborators, those who are on the inside who are mm -hmm. covering this up, who are not speaking about it, who are sort of making their peace with 
the enemy and are, are contributing. Who are pretending that yes. Islam is peaceful and wonderful. and yeah. Exactly. And exactly. we know who those people are. They go all the way to the top in the church. Very true. Uh, so I haven't seen the film yet. I talked to someone who did see it. Uh, they, they claimed it was very good. It does have... Uh, some very rough language in it was their description. So again, yeah. I don't, I don't know, uh, but I, I, I yeah, can't specifically, uh, the idea of it seems very important to get raise awareness, but not having seen it yet, I can't clearly recommend it without uh, right. having seen it yet. Yeah. I was hoping to maybe go see it over the weekend or sometime next week. So I'll keep you posted if I'm able to go see that. Yes, definitely. And just as a quick side note, before we transition into our next story, uh, Jim Caviezel has confirmed as recently as last month during an interview with Breitbart that a sequel to The Passion of the Christ is indeed coming. It's definitely in the works. These, this is the quote from uh, Mr. Caviezel, quote, Mel Gibson just sent me the third picture, the third draft. It's coming. It's called The Passion of the Christ, Resurrection. And Edward, our friend Edward Penton at the National Catholic Register mentioned in a story yesterday that uh, apparently it's on the, what is it, the IB, IBDM, that movie website. Uh -huh. It has a page on there now, and it's slotted for release sometime in 2022. So we look forward to that film very much. Yes, we do. We do. Well, returning to uh, the, the United States, we obviously had some big news uh, this week. I'd say uh, the, the biggest political big, news, yeah. Yes. Uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, passed away this week. Uh, she was the first woman to lie in state in the uh, uh, publicly in the Capitol uh, just yesterday, I guess. She has been on the Supreme Court for a long time, uh, maybe even longer than some of our viewers have lived, because she <laughs> was confirmed in the Clinton administration. Yep. I think it was, she was on the bench for a little over 27 years, if I counted correctly. Yes. Correctly. Yes, of close to 30 years. Um, and you know, this is someone who is very, uh, was extremely committed to the radical feminist uh, pro-abortion death uh, cause. Uh, was a, you know, and again, obviously in the life of a ju justice, even ones who have very bad principles, I'm not saying every decision she made was bad, even a broken clock is right twice a day, right? It's the old right. analogy. So again, we're, we, but overall, in terms of her judicial career, uh, was really a... a not uh, something to celebrate. Not to something sure. to celebrate. <laughs> a real uh, real bulwark advancing Planned Parenthood's cause uh, and advancing uh, the, the, the rejection of life and the promotion of abortion and government-funded abortion. And, and it's interesting, a lot of people, some people tried to rationalize it when she was being confirmed. I remember her confirmation hearings because she was critical of Roe v. Wade, but really when you dug, she was critical of the way they reached the decision, that she thought it wasn't the strongest. Uh, they used a particular constitutional argument pro-life people have been exposing as flawed for a long time. And I think she recognized that weakness. So she wasn't opposed to abortion. She just wanted to use a different clause of the constitution as kind of a second argument. Um, right. And cause she was again, very clear. Abortion was so important that it, it, there's no way that we could allow it to be undermined. Um, so done a lot of, did a lot of harm as a justice on the Supreme court on the wrong side of a lot of uh, issues on the natural and divine law. Obviously we, you know, Compend her to the mercy of God. Know nothing about her state of her soul when she died, but uh, as a public figure, not anything, as Matt said, to celebrate. 
So that immediately, uh, just moments really after her death was announced, mm-hmm. uh, brought Which was about last week Friday, by the way, yes, was September eighteenth. Yes, shortly after we prepared last week's news roundup, right? Uh, a firestorm broke out. Why? Because the way the Constitution works is the President of the United States appoints the judges to the or justices to the Supreme Court with the advice and consent of the Senate. Correct. And, and it so, doesn't specify that you can't do that during an election year. It simply well, says that's no, part, just of the says job description. part of the job. And so the President Trump announced his, his intention to do what the Constitution calls for and to nominate very quickly uh, and to have the, the, the Senate ask the Senate to confirm, again, his yet to be named nominee. He will be announcing his nominee t- tomorrow, Saturday, supposedly at 5 p.m. Eastern. And this flew the media. I mean, it was, I was amazed. I wouldn't recommend watching these, but somebody showed me, my wife actually showed me, people were recording themselves on, on YouTube or TikTok or whatever these things are. Mm-hmm. One lady in her car cursing out Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah, uh, I saw not, And again, not like people like us who thought she was bad. I mean, we're trying to be respectful, but cursing her out for dying. Like, this is the right. most First of all, why you would film yourself cursing around and post that is beyond me but the anger towards her from her friends and colleagues i mean her allies people who essentially think that she should have resigned during the obama administration so that another liberal like her could have replaced replaced, yes and this appointment is incredibly important because right now in the supreme court uh we have clearly reliable justices uh who have said in the most recent abortion dissent the case about abortion that they think Roe is wrongly decided and should be overturned. And again, they said this in varying degrees, but essentially that's Justice Thomas, uh, Gorsuch, uh, uh, Kavanaugh, and Justice Alito. And uh, you need, with nine justices on the Supreme Court, you need five to right. make a decision happen. Justice Roberts, who although was appointed by George Bush, is certainly not a reliable traditional conservative. I mean, he speaking of Judases, yes, yeah, speaking <laughs> of Judases, and I don't think my I do not think he will overturn Roe v. Wade. He has made lots of statements about even if he might not have agreed at the time, it's kind of a bad law is better than changing your mind. It's better to be consistent than right, and he's talked right. a lot about. So, in other words, he thinks that slavery should still be legal. Uh, well, I'm sure he would dispute that, but if he was being consistent with some of his principles, and he's he clearly is, you know, uh, unreliable. I would say on many yeah. issues, not on all, but on many. But then we have violently in favor of abortion uh, uh, justices uh, Kagan, uh, Sotomayor, and uh, Breyer, who are you know, clearly going to vote to expand abortion, not restrain it. Right. So this is really critical right now if, and Ginsburg was there before, yes. So with her gone now, uh, and if a reliable person were appointed who wouldn't enforce the natural divine law and the constitution as written, because they both, they all accord in this point, uh, would overturn Roe v. Wade and then empower the states to again uh, prohibit abortion. And, and again, that is not something small. Now, would abortion end? No, because they would just take the handcuffs off the states. New York has already passed a law saying we don't care what the Supreme Court does. We're protecting abortion until after birth. But the vast majority of the states, I I think there's a huge number that would outright law abortion, if not restrict it severely. And how many millions of children will be saved is incalculable. So this is of epic proportions in terms of history, someone to replace her vote that would be along the lines that we can expect would, uh, and this one issue alone, as Chris Farrar and I talked about in terms of the election before we knew about this, is 
uh, incredibly important. And again, whatever good Donald Trump have done, if he appoints someone that ends a significant number of abortions in this country, uh, he would be have left an incredible legacy. So yeah. we don't know who he's going to appoint, but the real point I want to thrust, uh, sort of discuss in this story uh, is anti-Catholicism, because this has really brought out uh, incredible anti-Catholicism mm -hmm. uh, in, in the vehemence of the media, who, again, as Matt indicated, don't want him to appoint this and have done everything to argue he shouldn't appoint someone and the hopes that Joe Biden will come in. And we know he has outright said he basically will only appoint someone that's a tool of Planned Parenthood. I just so, wanted to interject a quick comment, if I could, real quick. Yes. I noticed looking on social media, the day that... Uh, or, you know, death was a known um, media figure saying, you know, basically, if the president tries to do his constitutional duty, people need to be rioting in the streets. We will, we will burn it down. I mean, just threats for outright insurrection. It was unbelievable yes. to see that. Uh, again, and one thing a priest said to me that's good about that is he said whenever the devil is on the is is losing and is backed into a corner he becomes loud he's you see and hear his vehemence more when he's doing well and he's on the ascendancy he hides in the shadows and he's quiet right. so again this priest said i take these like the kind of example you pointed to is this is a good sign the devil knows his days are numbered uh, so yes. a little hope there yes. but in any event it really this has brought out the anti-catholic bias uh, that's out there because you notice the news media loves to celebrate as we've talked about the the uh uh what is the word of the archbishop vigano used the 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 catholicism of he's uh, i can't think of it but in his letter about biden he's this sort of appearance of catholicism of um joe biden the media okay. loves it he used a word i can't remember but in any event love and always oh he's a good catholic this and that which is a sham right. but but they are now using it to attack who may be one of the potential nominees so again we don't know who the president's going to announce uh he has a long list of people so we know it's somebody on this long list he's now he said, has he has indicated it's gonna that be, it's probably going to be a, a woman right we know he's indicated yeah. it will be a woman not probably i think he said definitely and that there are okay. five he's considering so that's led the media to speculate uh, there is a woman a justice on the seventh circuit who was rumored to be his second choice when kavanaugh was appointed and was rumored that he said well let's save her for when ginsburg in, needs to be replaced her name is uh just uh, judge amy coney barrett a uh, former law professor and has was appointed by trump uh, so he vetted her once already to be on the seventh circuit uh, court of Appeals, which is the, the courts right below the Supreme Court. Okay. Um, now, is she, who is she? Don't have a lot to time, time to talk about. From our traditional Catholic perspective, she's certainly not one of us. She is uh, very much in the, I would say the John Paul II conservative charismatic mold. Mm -hmm. I had to characterize her. Very active in a charismatic movement, but very, very strong on those few issues where John Paul II was very conservative, uh, that relating to abortion, uh, contraception, family life, and actually, believe it or not, natural hierarchy in terms of the 
proper relation between men and women, uh, mm-hmm. the relationship of marriage, as as taught by by the church. And she is a, she's a mother of seven, if I understand correctly. Mother of seven. A few of them may be adopted. I'm not sure, but but definitely of seven children. Yeah. Um, and and again, is she going to the traditional Latin mass? No. Is she perfect in all of her understanding? No. She clearly buys into the John Paul II mistake about the death penalty that Pope Francis has taken to new heights, that to be pro-life, you have to be opposed to the death penalty, which, again, we don't have time to discuss in detail, but as we have in the past, is, is not correct. Right. But even with all those flaws, again, we're, are we going to get you know, um, uh, a traditional, solidly traditional Catholic? I mean, Scalia is the closest we had, and most people didn't know he was until later in his life. No, unlikely. But she is certainly on the critical issue of our day, uh, going to, it seems like, do the right thing. She's only been on the Seventh Circuit for a short period. Trump appointed her just a few years ago. But on the several abortion cases that came before her, she was on the right side. She was dissenting in those decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, you know, for the right cause. Uh, has written as a law professor that Roe v. Wade should be overturned and spoken on that, been very clear. But what she's been mostly criticized for is actually very striking and something very traditional that if a traditionalist would say, she said, look, I will follow the law, but faith, the divine law, is the highest law. And a judge should, yes, you know, enforce the law as, as chosen by the, the proper lawgivers, but judges can never violate the divine law. So if there is a human law that is wrong, that is against the, the God's command, like for example, I don't know if she gives this example, but you know, if I had to order someone as a judge to commit an abortion, then I wouldn't do that. Because you know, faith needs to be a check on our human reason. And again, these are very traditional Catholic principles that you rarely hear from outside of the traditional circles. She has a very firm understanding. Now, again, she misapplies that because of some of the, and this is the case with the new church, her misunderstanding of the death penalty. So, for example, we would say she's wrong in saying I wouldn't condemn someone to death, even if the law justly did so because it's against the principle of life. Now she's wrong in the application, but her principle that if it were truly against the natural law, she wouldn't be able to do it. That's a sound principle. So again, she makes some mistakes. We have to be clear about that, but her principles are sound and she is certainly not making any mistakes on abortion, contraception, LGBTQ, all this stuff will be on the right side. And the media again, very much vehemently attacked this principle. Oh, her faith is going to dictate her jurisprudence. Uh, which is right. right? And then secondly, there was a smear campaign this week, uh, which is incredible. So all all the major news outlets, ABC, Newsweek, and I forget, I was trying to figure out which one started it, but they all kind of jumped on the bandwagon. Reuters published a story saying that this charismatic group she belongs to called the People of Faith People of, um, is a people of praise. Oh, people of praise, excuse yeah. me. People of praise. People of praise uh, is a cult, an ultra conservative. It's funny, all the labels <laughs> they throw at us, they're throwing at them, which is yeah. kind of funny. Like if you told a priest or the uh, traditional priest, this charismatic people of praise group that's a little ecumenical because they have some Protestants involved is ultra conservative or ultra traditionalist, <laughs> I you'd laugh. But this is the news media, right? There. Uh, but so smearing this group, saying they're, and why are they ultra conservative? Because they're opposed to abortion, they're in favor of traditional marriage, in favor of the hierarchy between husband and wife. And she, I mean, that, so in other words, natural law. Natural law. <laughs> and then they came out with this story that this group is so crazy that it was the basis of uh, this dystopian novel 
by this radical feminist called Margaret Atwood from the, I think the eighties called the handmaid's tale, which is about this dystopian future with a crazy theocracy that as a side note, if you actually read it, reads more like Islam, if you yeah. read, but, but that uh, oppresses women and makes them slaves, spacious sexual slaves to bear children for the rulers. Uh, that this was based on this, this whole future on this people of praise that own Amy Coney Barrett. And you saw all these headlines, Amy Coney Barrett belongs to radical group that was, you know, the basis for The Handmaid's Tale. Well, then it turned out on Tuesday that it actually wasn't that they, they claimed they found evidence that Margaret Atwood based it on this. Then it was a, it was a newspaper article that she had read. Well, then they said, oh, actually that newspaper article doesn't refer to the, the people of praise, but a different group called people of hope. So not even a group that Barrett belongs to. Then it comes out that the newspaper are, again, there's no proof that Atwood, and she, and when asked in her life, said it wasn't based on a particular group. But then they say, well, there's this newspaper article in her possession near her manuscript. Well, then it turns out that newspaper article comes out after she wrote the book. So <laughs> it's impossible that it could have been an inspiration for the book because it didn't even exist at the time. Wow. But but did they retract this and say, oh, sorry, we just smeared this woman with a totally made-up story? No, the stories are still out there with the headlines. They just publish in little fine print, oh, uh, actually, this happened afterwards. And again, what's important about this, not that she's perfect. She's certainly a really solid candidate, but there are others on his list. We're pretty clear. He has vetted all of these people to be pro-life. But what it shows is how desperate the devil is, how radical the left is, that they generally make up these insane stories to smear her uh, because of her Catholic belief. Again, what I would say the remnants of her Catholic belief, because again, we don't know her subjective state. She may not have had to offer her the truth of tradition. We have had the grace for God to do that to us, but she's in this crazy crisis in the church, found the shards of tradition and truth that are still there on her own with no help from the conciliar church and is actively you know, promoting them. And what does that bring about in insane rage? from uh, the powers that be. So yes. we don't Emphasis know. Emphasis on insane. <laughs> insane. And we don't know who the president will pick. Uh, my own gut, I think it may not be her. I have a feeling Trump got let her name out there maybe as a distraction because I think he likes to play with the media, right? Get them all focused <laughs> on her and then say, oh, by the way, it's this other person. I don't know. We'll know tomorrow and we'll maybe have a story next week talking about his nominee. But what's interesting about this is the we talked about the persecution in the whole in the Islamic world. There's still a deep-seated persecution, and how do you get out of that persecution? As Mr. Caviezel said, you become a collaborator. So if you're a liberal bishop, like Blaze Kupish in Chicago, and you're like, "Oh, I'm fine with abortion. All this isn't a big deal." If you're like Tobin and say Biden's a good Catholic. The media doesn't call you ultra conservative, doesn't smear you, doesn't lie about you. Mm. But as soon as you actually say something that's really Catholic, they come after you with a vengeance. Yes, just like to, to wrap up, um, it was during her confirmation hearings, I believe, to be on the bench that she currently serves on, uh, who was it, Senator Feinstein from California, right? Yes. She was grilling uh, Judge Barrett over her Catholic faith and said something like, uh, the dogma lives loudly in you, and that's concerning, something yes. like that. So again, she already was subjected to anti-Catholic attacks. And, and by the way, guess who they've announced going to be the pit bull going after his nominee, Senator Kamala Harris, <laughs> who in an earlier story we did, vehemently went after a lower court judge that was being appointed by Trump because he was a member of the Knights of Columbus. And she yeah. said, you should be disqualified 
for being on the bench if you belong to this religious group. So uh, these hearings are going to have fireworks. <laughs> Indeed. We'll, be, we'll keep you posted on those in the future broadcasts. Yes. All right. So uh, we're going to stay in the realm of politics for our next story. Uh, this one, a little bit more of a positive story, thankfully. Mm -hmm. Um, President Donald Trump earlier this week, a lot of different events going on this week. We had that uh, online summit about uh, the persecution of Christians, and I think, so that was on the 23rd, so what, Wednesday. On that same day uh, this week, President Trump addressed, you know, virtually, they weren't able to have this event in person, but it's something called the National Catholic Prayer Breakfast, which I think has been going on annually for the last uh, 14 years or so, something like that. I'm not sure who all is involved in organizing it, but uh, it was very nice to see President Trump gave an address, and we're going to play a brief video clip of his address, which uh, it was clipped out of the full recording of the prayer breakfast, which is a couple hours long. LifeSite News provides the video clip of the president's address, so we're going to play that for you. my great honor to address the National Catholic Prayer Breakfast. I want to thank my good friend Leonard Leo and the board members of this wonderful breakfast, as well as, of course, the Knights of Columbus. And congratulations to Attorney General Bill Barr, special man, on receiving the annual award. I also want to express my deep gratitude to every person who prays for me and for the First Lady and for our country. We love our country. There's no country like it. I grew up next to a Catholic church in Queens, New York, and I saw how much incredible work the Catholic church did for our community. These are amazing people. These are great, great people. Catholic schools give many underserved children the chance to reach their God-given potential. Catholics of all backgrounds share the love of Christ with the most vulnerable as they care for the elderly, the homeless, and neighbors in need. Our nation is strong because of Catholics and all people of faith. We believe in the joy of family, the blessing of freedom, and the dignity of work, and the eternal truth that every child, born and unborn, is made in the holy image of God. I will always protect the vital role of religion and prayer in American society, and I will always defend the sacred right to life. Today, I am announcing that I will be signing the Born Alive Executive Order, to ensure that all precious babies born alive, no matter their circumstances, receive the medical care that they deserve. This is our sacrosanct moral duty. We are also increasing federal funding for the neonatal research to ensure that every child has the very best chance to thrive and to grow. Melania and I recently visited the shrine of St. John Paul II, a man who had such a profound impact on our country and the world. It was an incredible visit. On his first visit to the United States, he concluded his visit to a Catholic parish in Harlem with these words, let the good news of Christ radiate from your hearts and the peace that he alone gives remain forever in your souls. We are very grateful for the millions of Catholics across America who live by these beautiful words and bring hope and joy and light and grace to the world. Thank you, God bless you, and God bless America. And please, take good care of Bill Barr. He's very important to all of us.
Wow, there uh, again, like we talked about during the Republican convention. I mean, it's been a lot. I, I not in my lifetime heard words like that uh, spoken by a U.S. sitting president. Yes, using the name of our Lord and praising praising Him, and you know, it's it's amazing. It's wonderful. So uh, go ahead. No, I say again, Ronald Reagan probably is the closest, but even Ronald Reagan was not. Uh, he was a bit more deist in a sense, sort of very vague, very, again, supportive of religion. Certainly, you know, good president, but never as explicit as uh, we just heard, as Donald Trump right. has been. And uh, again, there's a lot of those who have found, which are out there, positions that he's had in the past on abortion that talked about certain exceptions. Or, uh, But again, to hear what he said, I mean, every born and unborn, with, you know, he, he, it was very absolute language. Every right. child uh, who's conceived, every child. So, uh, again, I think we can't get lost in some of the details here and say, oh, five years ago, he said something about a rape or, in, or incense right. you know, exception. What he's saying now, his platform is across the board solidly uh, against abortion. And he backs it up with actions, right? As we heard there, he signed an executive order. Uh, and this is really important because Planned Parenthood, as we know from the Dilaudid reports, they like it when children survive abortion because organs that they're able to extract while the, the child is still alive are more valuable. And so they like it when the child survives the abortion and then they can extract and kill the child after the abortion butchery is, is, is over. And he, he's striking them right at the heart of their uh, their money, right? Because yeah. that's that's a direct attack on it. And it also ex exposes the brutality. Because again, a lot of people don't know a lot about abortion. Oh, I wouldn't do it myself. But think of it as a very sanitized, you know, medical procedure. And yeah. when you bring to their attention, no, there are children that survive this and then are killed or allowed to die lying on a table somewhere. It's like Abby Johnson's famous comment now, did you know abortion has a smell? That's right. Because it, it, it wakes people up to think about the reality of abortion. And it's thanks to President Trump that she was invited to speak yes. at the convention. Yes, very true. So while, after finding this uh, story about the National Catholic Prayer Bre Breakfast, and again, we thank LifeSite News for clipping that uh, the portion of his address to the breakfast, I also found on LifeSite News, interestingly, that Archbishop Carla Maria Vigano uh, sent a brief note to the prayer breakfast uh, specifically mentioning President Trump. I'm just going to read a couple of quick excerpts from his, his note, and we'll include a link to it in the description of this video. So he began by saying, quote, With deep emotion, I have learned that President Donald J. Trump will be taking part in the National Catholic Prayer Breakfast on September 23rd. I would like to make myself present in this memorable occasion, on this memorable occasion, in which I participated with great enthusiasm as apostolic nuncio during the years of my mission in Washington, D.C. He goes on, the presidential elections in November represent an epochal change, a biblical, or excuse me, an epochal challenge, a biblical challenge, the outcome of which will be decisive not only for the United States of America, but for the whole world. Very strong words. Yes. It is necessary, he continues, that all of you Catholics of America are well aware of the role that Providence has, de has deigned to entrust to your president. In other words, God himself entrusted to President Trump. And that you are aware of the extraordinary battle that he is preparing to fight 
against the demonic forces of the deep state and against the new world order. Wow. Very ends that ends that paragraph by saying, I am at your side with fervent prayer together with millions of Catholics and with all people of goodwill throughout the world. Wow. I, very powerful from Archbishop Vigano. And, and again, we should really, I urge our, our, our viewers double a triple our prayers for the conversion of Donald Trump um, because ultimately I mean that talk about miraculous if he were to convert in his second term look at the good he's done without that and and again he strikes me as you read a lot of those stories of saints that convert and they always have this sort of fascination with Catholicism it kind of keeps coming into their life uh, and again listening to his little story there it reminded me of it right grew up yeah. next to a Catholic church he marries someone raised Catholic, Melania, well, marries in a certain sense, right, in a right. civil sense. But we know he accepts a statue of Our Lady of Fatima from an exorcist. We, these sort of brushes with Catholicism seem to be plaguing him as if God is banging on the door. I want your soul. I want your soul. Now, again, yes. ultimately he has free will, which is why we need to pray that God will shower him with graces. But again, from all this evidence, it feels to me like God is after his soul. He really, really wants him to, to come, you know, again, and often we can, you know, we, we obviously don't merit God's grace, but if we live according to the natural law, we dispose ourselves. And if we support the natural law, we dispose ourselves to receive that grace. And again, he hasn't much of his life, but in his recent, you know, good works that can't, be but disposing him for that. So again, I think we need to pray as we have been for his reelection, but we need to really double down on praying for his conversion because what incredible things he could do if he were to become uh, in one with the church. Yes. So, well, that leads to an interesting transition to our next story because you know the old joke, what do you think? Donald Trump is more Catholic than the Pope? <laughs> well, in this case with this president and this Pope, uh, that's not a stretch to say that a non-Catholic is more Catholic than the Pope. Right. Uh, seriously, and it's very sad. A sad story came out this week reported by America Magazine, the liberal rag, the Jesuits, uh, that Pope Francis, after a public audience, met with about 40 members of a group called Tenda Gion Gion Gionata, which is Jonathan's tent. And these are a group of uh, parents and activists who are trying to get acceptance of the church uh, of uh, transgender, homosexual, uh, sodomites, etc. And uh, they have this, you might be wondering, what's this Jonathan's tent? Well, it's very blasphemous what they've done. They have attempted to co-opt the biblical story of the deep friendship between Jonathan and uh, King David that's in the Bible. And the reference when David joins Jonathan in his tent to blasphemely distort it into claiming that David and Jonathan were homosexual lovers. Again, this is their, this is why they choose this name because they claim this proves that sodomy is permitted in the Bible or is celebrated. Get outrageous. Despite the explicit uh, text. Yeah, the exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so they've taken this, this biblical term and, and you know, blasphemed it. Uh, the, and because worse is these are purported Catholics. So this group met with uh, Pope Francis and their main goal is to accept people that commit these sins as they are. Right? What does that mean? Not just accept them as, okay, you're people that are sinners that need to convert, but to accept you with the sins you are committing. And I'm just going to play for you a little video clip. He's speaking to the leader of this group here, uh, Mara Grassi, and you can see a translation of what Pope Francis says. Uh, 
Again, in his own words, as you got to hear it or read it for yourself, if you don't uh, like Chris Ferrara speak Italian, uh, there he is. I mean, that is an error. Another no other way to call it, but it is God loves them as they are. No, he doesn't. God loves them as his creation, but he doesn't love the sin that they are attaching themselves to. He loves them as what they should be not as they are. And there you heard, you know, from God loves them as they are. What does that mean? Don't tell, so it's saying stay in your sin. Again, another story that's often distorted from the Bible of St. Mary Magdalene, when our Lord said, ye who is sinless cast the first stone. He doesn't say to Mary Magdalene, I love you as you are. He says, is there no one to condemn you? I will not condemn you. Go and sin no more. I am going to give you a chance through my mercy to redeem yourself. Don't do it anymore. I don't love you as you are. I love you as you should be, stopping your adultery and your prostitution. And here, what's the vicar of Christ saying? <laughs> I love them as they are. Keep good work. God blesses you for the work she does to keep these children trapped as slaves of sin. Remember, St. Paul tells us we are slaves. Freedom only comes through rejecting sin, that we become slaves to sin. He's saying, keep them in their sin, keep them in their slavery rather than freeing them. It's just, I mean, it's scandalous. It certainly is. So there was a related story, I mean, not directly related to what the Pope said, but um, just kind of a, an insight into, you talked about earlier how the devil yes. rages at times, and I, we certainly saw a manifestation of this in Poland recently at a uh, a gathering of reparation, pr folks praying the rosary outside of a public building, um, where, as I recall from the story, they had, it has a statue of our Lord over the front entrance, and the, these pro-LGBT activists had somehow gotten up there and put a rainbow flag around him, and something to that effect so so um catholics faithful catholics had organized a weekly um prayer gather you know rosary, rosary. Rally, basically yeah i think student group was a student group and we're praying to make reparation for this desecration you know put on by putting this symbol that represents sin uh, on them and then we'll see again the violent lashing out of the devil here's what happened during one of these uh during one of these rosaries she bit me on the hand and drew blood said stanislav sadovsky a young TFP student action volunteer who was attacked during a prayer rally in Warsaw on September 12, 2020. 
As the live stream video shows, the attacker, draped in a rainbow flag, disrupted the rosary rally of reparation held in front of the historic statue of our Lord carrying the cross. Wow, and there again, we were talking about the diabolical hatred. I mean, you can see and hear it in that video. Obviously, biting the person. I mean, that's extraordinary. <laughs> but particularly, think about it, we saw the people in the masks in this supposed time of a health emergency with this pandemic. Right. I, mean, I mean, that just puts icing on the cake. And that then woman he, was wearing a mask. Of, yeah, so. exactly. Was wearing, <laughs> she's worried about getting sick, but then she bites someone. Again, just shows how sort of diabolical it is, driven by irrationality. But then also the end of that clip, where you just see her aggressively trying to attack the person playing the rosary, and this big guy kind of has to get in the way. He keeps body blocking her. Right. Uh, it's just... Uh, again, unbelievable. From people just praying the rosary. This is the hatred that these children of darkness that Archbishop Vigano keeps talking about, uh, that they, they bear. And the prayer we're going to pray shortly, where he talks about those who defend the inviolable principles of natural law expose themselves to the furious assaults of the enemy of the human race, right? That, that's you see right there. Uh, it's unbelievable. Yes. And again, then we have the Pope over in Rome saying, oh, it's fine. We accept you as you are when these young, brave Polish Catholics are standing up to defend our Lord's honor. Right. Well, we've had a full slate of stories for you this week. Um, we did want to briefly mention before we close in prayer about uh, Archbishop Vigano has recently responded. He responded earlier this week to Dr. Peter Kwasniewski, who is a CF CFN contributor. Uh, Dr. Kwasniewski Shortly after, oh, did I lose you, Brian? Oh, no, I'm here. here. Oh, okay, very good. So, yeah, Dr. Kwasniewski wrote an article uh, for 1 Peter 5 back in, I think it was back in June, either June or July. And Archbishop Vigano is, oh, yeah, it was on June 29th that it was published at 1 Peter 5 called Why Vigano's Critique of the Council Must Be Taken Seriously. And Archbishop Vigano was kind enough to send us uh, at CFN his response to Dr. Kwasniewski, and we have that published on our website, catholicfamilynews.com. So we encourage folks, if you haven't had a chance, to uh, go over there and see that. Oh, Brian has it pulled up on the screen there for us. So we don't have a lot of time left uh, to go over the, his response in detail. I don't know if Brian had any a highlight that he may have wanted to share with folks before we close in prayer. Yeah, he, again, mostly agrees with uh, our good friend and his analysis, but expands a little bit more on what Archbishop Vigano means about annulling the council or putting it behind us, and really goes into a lot of detail about um, the hermeneutic continuity, which has been a big theme he talked about and how it's failed. And he also cites some specific examples. He goes through uh, among others, Lumen Gentium 16, to show how you just cannot, this is not in harmony, there's no continuity uh, in this statement. And he goes through a few others. But then his, his really sort of fundamental um, point on why the hermeneutic of, that, of uh, continuity does not work, he says this, it isn't possible to change reality, to make it, here we're talking about Lumen Gentium 16, to mm -hmm. correspond to an ideal schema. If the evidence shows that some propositions contained 
in the council documents and similarly in the Acts of Bergoglio's Magisterium are heterodox. And if doctrine teaches us that the Acts of the Magisterium do not contain error, the conclusion is not that those propositions are not erroneous, but that they cannot be part of the Magisterium, period. Yes. Uh, again, he, he loves that. Uh, and then one other final quote, the central vice, therefore, lies in having fraudulently led the council fathers to approve ambiguous texts, which they considered Catholic enough to deserve the plotchet, and then using that same ambiguity to get them to say exactly what the innovators wanted. Those texts cannot today be changed in their substance to make them orthodox or clearer. They must simply be rejected according to the forms that the supreme authority of the church shall judge appropriate in due course, since they are vitiated by a malicious intention. And it will also have to be determined whether an anomalous and disastrous event such as Vatican II can still merit the title of ecumenical council. Once its heterogeneity compared to previous councils is universally recognized, a heterogeneity so evident that it requires the use of a hermeneutic something that no other council has ever needed. Yeah. So again, really, really strong on this theme that we at Catholic Family News and the Remnant and others have said for years, Michael Davies, like this, this is reality. Whether you yeah. like it or not, it just is what it is. And we can't bury our head in the stand and pretend. And then number two, expanding a little bit what he means. I mean, he's saying, look, you need to say these count these texts are not savable they're too dangerous and even raising the idea like it someday maybe you say this whole thing this whole council shouldn't even be considered a valid council of the church not because it was invalidly convened but because its acts are just in such discontinuity that's frankly stronger i think than even archbishop lefebvre ever publicly said um, he might agree with it now but uh in terms of phrasing something even is much stronger so uh, again, please read the whole thing. It's a beautiful response. A lot of, we haven't done it justice, just quoted two passages, but right. it is, and I hate to sort of sound like this, but it is just such a relief after so many decades of traditionalist fight to feel like someone has listened and, and, and saying, you know, you guys have been right all along. And that's what Archbishop Vigano is saying. Yes. And he's basically sending out weekly missives to that effect. So it is very encouraging to have. Very true. Uh, a prelate who's willing to do that. Yes. Well, a long roundup that brings us to the end. And uh, thank you all for listening. As we said in the beginning, please share. Remember, one of the additions we made this year, this is available in podcast through all your major channels, uh, Stitcher, uh, Apple, iHeartRadio, Amazon, Echo, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the major Spotify, channels, Spotify. Yeah. Please uh, like this if you enjoyed listening to it, forward it, like it, send it. We are also now posting little teasers on a Catholic Family News Instagram account. Again, you can't hear the whole thing. They link to the whole thing. But if you want, if you're on Instagram and want to just forward those, you can follow us on Instagram, Catholic Family News. Again, just as another vehicle to, to make people aware of this. Uh, and uh, so please remember that and help support the apostolate yes and on that note we will end as we have been doing for uh, several months now with the prayer for a resurgence of christianity in america and the re-election of uh, president donald trump composed by archbishop vigano in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy ghost amen almighty and eternal god king of kings and lord of lords graciously turn your gaze to us who invoke you with confidence 
bless us, citizens of the United States of America. Grant peace and prosperity to our nation. Illuminate those who govern us so that they may commit themselves to the common good in respect for your holy law. Protect those who, defending the inviolable principles of the natural law and your commandments, must face the repeated assaults of the enemy of the human race. Keep in the hearts of your children courage for the truth, love for virtue, and perseverance in the midst of trials. Make our families grow in the example that our Lord has given us, together with his most holy mother and Saint Joseph in the home of Nazareth. Give to our fathers and mothers the gift of strength to educate wisely the children with which you have blessed them. Give courage to those who, in spiritual combat, fight the good fight as soldiers of Christ against the furious forces of the children of darkness. Keep each one of us, O Lord, in your most sacred heart, and above all, him whom your providence has placed at the head of our nation. Bless the President of the United States of America, so that, aware of his responsibility and his duties, he may be a knight of justice, a defender of the oppressed, a firm bulwark against your enemies, and a proud supporter of the children of light. Place the United States of America and the whole world under the mantle of the Queen of Victories, our unconquered leader in battle, the Immaculate Conception. It is thanks to her and through your mercy that the hymn of praise rises to you, O Lord, from the children whom you have redeemed in the most precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Well, we look forward to seeing you next week. We'll have probably another full roundup of stories, hopefully some comments on the Supreme Court nominee, and I uh, wish you a, a blessed weekend and a good week. Yes, Godspeed. Speed. <laughs>